Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the future of biotech. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined by David Bates, the CEO and co-founder of Linus Health. We'll be talking a little bit about mental health, some of the current approaches, as well as Linus's vision to enable detection, diagnoses, and intervention for patients with such diseases. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could give us a quick intro on your background and what led you to uh, running Linus today. I'm a scientist by training, trained up in the life scientists with a touch of engineering in the background. Hmm. My scientific career consisted of biomarkers, uh, molecular biomarkers and their detection, and integrating that into devices for detecting outcomes or detecting disease states or decline of homeostasis. I left the lab in 2009 to begin venture capital in the biotech sector here in Boston. I worked for a firm called Morningside. That's where I cut my teeth in business and venture capital doing a lot of pharma investments and some devices and diagnostics. I was getting uh, restless with the capital efficiency aspect. Mm -hmm. And I saw an opportunity, you know, at the rise of clean tech, saw an opportunity in the built environment or in real estate, which is the largest asset class in the world. And I saw that it was quite behind on technology or having IT infrastructure. Um, To give you an example, it was spending about just over 1% of its total expense load on IT, whereas the financial sector was spending upwards of 7%. And so there was an incredible margin in between the two. And it seemed like the right opportunity with the rise of Airbnb and WeWork to get into the sector because it had a large scale and a B2B rationale. Now, why does real estate tech have anything to do with digital (laughs) health? Well, I'll get to that. The majority of our early investments were using technologies, hardware, in the built environment that was connected to the cloud and used software to analyze the occupants, to deliver insights to business owners, stakeholders, to make better decisions on how they run their asset. And these companies were collecting enormous amounts of data, and it was valuable data, and it made tremendous amounts of decisions more rational and enabling the reduction of expenses. It also enabled the access to assets, so increased utilization of assets, it reduced cost of running those assets, and ultimately they were able to gain insights to uplift the occupant experience, so eventually driving pricing premiums or competitive advantage. So that was really cool. Got to see you know, some good deals, some, some, uh, we made some money, but I thought to myself with one of my partners, There's got to be a higher and better use of this data. And my roots being in life science, we began to turn our attention to digital health, which I think we're on the threshold or precipice of a real revolution here. And so we began looking at what are those measurements that are being made and how can they better inform us of what's going on in the brains of people. And so that's really what led us to where we are today. Mm. Wow. So, you know, it sounds like you've developed a keen interest on diseases related to mental health. Can you give us a quick overview of some of the current issues in that space and also, you know, to some extent how we're currently tackling those? So I think it's no secret that mental health challenges are on the rise across the board and across, in my opinion, all age groups. 
in the early stage, you have autism spectrum disorder, you have a number of childhood disorders, a neurodiverse populations on the rise. Then in the categories from 11 to call it 35, you're seeing a lot of personality disorders manifest. You also have great increase in the amount of suicides, so big mental health struggles there. And then you go all the way up the spectrum, 40 to 65 and beyond. It certainly sounds like uh, historically we haven't had very good tools to diagnose, and I think now we're finally starting to hopefully put the attention towards it. But I'd imagine that we don't have a lot of great tools to be able to help patients that are suffering from such diseases. That's true. You know, with Alzheimer's and other dementias, in America, Alzheimer's is more feared than cancer. Hmm. But unlike cancer, people feel they have no, nothing they can do about it. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we just hope that doesn't happen to us or those we love. But as you say in business, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> and the tools that currently exist, there are a number of tools, and they're built upon sound science, but a lot of them are qualitative, and they're subject to a great amount of bias. Bias in me, if I'm the patient, I'm reporting to you, the psychiatrist, psychologist, healthcare professional, my latest understanding of my current self, and you are human yourself and are subject to interpretation. I like to say every human has a coefficient of truth and it's less than one. <laughs> so you have your interpretation of what I'm saying. So it's subject to my bias, it's subject to your bias, and then there are biases all along the way. So it's the best we have, but it could be much more quantitative, it could be much more objective with the tools that are existing in the field. Second is we do have uh, molecular tools, such as PET scans in the cases of dementia to be able to look at certain uh, protein biomarkers. We also have cerebrospinal fluid taps, mm-hmm. uh, which are very invasive. The PETs are expensive, the CSF <laughs> is super invasive and risky. Pull out, again, those same type of markers to give a better insight, especially with relation to you know, Alzheimer's and things of this nature. But there's nothing currently today that is able to go upstream, meaning most of the tools are more validation that what the neurologist or clinician thinks is happening is happening. So they're not necessarily the causative agent. They're just, yes, you're detecting a symptom, but it's very invasive or expensive to detect that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of room for better interventions, better tools. And the technologies, as I said, they, they exist. They just have not yet been applied. Mm-hmm. And the beauty, I believe, of software in the field of mental health or digital medicine is that software is something that brokers the physical to the psychological. Mm-hmm. You know, hardware is used to interact between the physical world and the in silico world which is understood and perceived by our psychological world, our our psychology. And so it makes a lot of sense that software could also broker the understanding or help broker the understanding of what's going on in the brain. Mm -hmm. And that is, we can use hardware to detect behaviors that is recorded or streamed. Those behaviors and their detection is streamed into servers to give us insights into those behaviors over time. It's called longitudinal in situ data collection. So using these tools to monitor how people are behaving over time, Mm. because we are creatures of habit. 
<laughs> little changes in those behaviors over time can be indicative of what's going on in the brain. Uh-huh. Since everything we do is the expression of what's going on in the brain. Even uh-huh. right now, as I speak, my voice, as well as the words I'm choosing to use, are generated by an immense coordination of neural circuitry, both on the neuromuscular aspect to produce sound and to control my voice, and on the cognitive aspects to choose my words and my word order, and even the timing at which I'm able to express my thoughts. That is an example of of just two biomarkers. But all of these things over time, including my gait and balance, Mm -hmm. they can all be indicative of things going on in my brain. Wow. So, so as you think about those um, biomarkers, which to your point are the result of highly coordinated activity in the brain, when it comes to the different types of diseases that it, you think it could be used to predict or help at least diagnose or identify, there is a pretty broad range, right? Absolutely. Everything from Alzheimer's to PTSD, right? Mm-hmm. Fall within this broader class of, of mental health. Can you give us a sense of the current diseases that you think some of these forgotten or overlooked biomarkers Mm -hmm. could uh, help identify. Sure. So you named two of them. I think another one that we're very interested in is traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. Um, We're interested as well as in depression, Mm -hmm. um, other personality disorders, actually the whole range, because we believe that if tracked longitudinally, we all have a certain constellation or digital fingerprint. Mm -hmm of these biomarkers that are still to be established Mm -hmm. that give an insight into how our brain is currently functioning. And as they change over time and which ones change over time, it can give us insights into the state of the brain if there's some kind of dysfunction or decompensation event with the hope or the hypothesis that we can pick these subtle changes up before the situation becomes clinical. We can pick it up in their behavior before someone is no longer able to control it. Mm -hmm. Because we have what psychologists call cognitive reserve or executive reserve. And so even if our brain or aspects of our brain start to decline and, you know, move toward dysfunction, our executive function is able to mask those things many times without us even knowing it. And so to the world around us, to the people around us, it's not apparent that there is some decompensating event happening in our brain until it's too late, until the executive reserve runs out and we can no longer control um, that degradation and we present as clinical. And at that time, often it's too late to intervene. The classic example is Alzheimer's. By the time we understand someone is having Alzheimer's, the degradation has occurred to such a point that we do not yet have anything that can reverse it or even slow it down significantly. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, maybe that's a good transition into Linus. Maybe one thing I'm personally curious about, and I'm sure the audience is as well, is what the origin story for the business was. Sounds like there's definitely a mix of interesting people and, and backgrounds that help build Linus to where it is today. So first, would love to hear a little bit about the founding story, then obviously a little bit about Linus and its perspective itself. As I said, you know, when we were looking for even more meaningful challenges to tackle besides uh, real estate technology, how has the <laughs> built environment become the extension of the healthcare provider? How is it more useful to the occupant, uh, more interactive and dynamic? We 
started looking at digital health solutions and we realized there's an awful lot of point solutions. And as a venture capitalist, I was trained by a brilliant venture capitalist to not invest in features or point solutions, but look for whole solutions and platforms, go for the source of truth, a system of record. And we were still investing because it takes so much science and so much like the real solutions, scientifically validated digital health solutions. They take entire teams to really drill down and understand, say voice, for example. Great company called Oral Analytics. They're, they're experts. 20-something years of speech-language pathology and digital signal processing is put together to analyze that marker, those two markers. And there is an entire field of things they can tackle there. But again, they're specific to the voice and speech, and they're the best at it, and that's fantastic. But where is the holistic solution? How do you get those best-in-class technologies to all come together and become in aggregate, greater than the sum of its parts. And that's what the genesis of Linus was. And so as we were looking at it, that's where we came from, myself and my partners, as well as I had met a few years ago, a Harvard professor called Alvaro Pascual Leone. And he's a brilliant behavioral neurologist, and he had very similar thoughts. And he'd been doing work in the, in the field. When he and I talking, we sat down once together and started speaking, and there was just immediate sparks, and then he went his way, I went mine, and a year later he reached out to me. And we had been working in this direction, and he had been working in this direction, and then we came together and, and formed Linus. That's amazing. It certainly sounds like a unique story about both passion for the problem, unique vision about the opportunity, and then perhaps a fortuitous set of discussions that, that led to the company today. Certainly. You know, uh, in that sort of circumstance, can you give us a little bit of sense of what Linus is focused on and maybe some of the frameworks you guys use to think about a pretty daunting set of challenges, mm -hmm. right, given the lack of focus on this space historically. We knew and we assessed the market. In addition to these point solutions, we realized, you know, we could not become, or at least we don't think we could become experts in one particular field, say Alzheimer's. There are experts out there standing on tremendous amounts of research and data and understanding. Okay, so we thought, well, how do we design a platform where at least 80% of it is pertinent or applies to all brain and mental health. And those certain aspects in the hands of those professionals can be tweaked and tailored to the specific disease state or disease set that they're after. And so we designed Linus with a view of maybe like a Dell computer in the old days where you used to pick and choose the different components to assemble the computer that met your needs. Mm -hmm. And so Linus was born with personalization in view, both personalization for the disease and personalization for the individual. So we have been assembling technologies, best-in-class technologies, and in fact, we're agnostic to those technologies, to measure different aspects of a person's life with these what we call digital biomarkers, such as voice, eye tracking, gait, you know, all, all these different behaviors, and combine them with all the medical records and molecular markers, established markers, and run advanced analytics to understand what is going on with this individual, both at a point in time, over a period of time, and cross-sectionally across populations, which helps to understand better the trajectory of their health and predict their risk factors. Because we, we approach uh, mental and brain health as, as health, not as disease or mm -hmm. disorder. 
Mm-hmm. And w- we really seek to help people take back control over their brain health. Mm-hmm. Because although in the case of Alzheimer's, 35%, somewhere around there, depending on where you get the data, of risk factors are lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. But 30 to 80% of the cases can be altered. Hmm. The health trajectory can be changed by making lifestyle decisions. Wow. So we look at health, thanks in big way to Alvaro. Mm -hmm. We look at health holistically. Mm -hmm. There is the medication component, Mm -hmm. but there's also many, at least seven pillars of Mm -hmm. of good health. Mm -hmm. And we seek to help people design or envision their best self that's realistic and provide them the tools to achieve that. Wow. And how much of the population that you feel could benefit from such tools? Can you give us a sense of yeah, which cross-section of the population you think would be the most amenable or the most open to these sorts of services? The short answer is we hope everyone <laughs> eventually will be able to use Linus to connect to their healthcare provider, to connect to their data. But we think in the near term, until we can clearly demonstrate value to healthy people, we believe the most acute area is in Alzheimer's because these folks are, there's, there's nothing really they can do about it. It is a tremendously debilitating and sad disease, both to the one who has it and the loved ones and the caretakers. And we think that is where a lot of the, especially in this country, a lot of the emphasis is on. And and also people under those circumstances or at risk are more willing to give up their privacy, which there is some aspect of giving up, you know, measuring things in my life to understand what's going on in my brain. They're willing to do that with the hope that they can help themselves or they can help people in the future to not get it or to reduce the incidence of it. Yeah. You know, in that circumstance, one of the things that I'm really curious about is you mentioned multiple different approaches to ensuring health for the whole self, one of which you mentioned was sort of pharmaceutical, right? Mm -hmm. Which I can imagine, especially in the case of, say, Alzheimer's, for example, could be a relevant solution. But you've been seeing, as of late, many of the bigger pharma companies, Mm -hmm. right, that have historically invested in that area recede from the domain. What's your opinion about that transition in the approach or posture towards neuroscience broadly from the bigger pharma companies? And what do you think that's going to do for mental health and behavioral disorders, et cetera, in the coming years? That's an excellent point. And I I am only so versed in it. So mm-hmm. I'll just put that as a sure. disclaimer <laughs> up front. I believe, especially in the case of Alzheimer's, even with this latest biogen situation, developing a drug is extremely expensive. It's super risky. It's not for the weak stomach. Um, <laughs> So if there's nothing getting through or making a change, pharma companies, I believe, are reserved or even get a little squeamish when it comes to making that commitment to invest in drugs. So I wonder if, and this is just my opinion, even the FDA and Biogen, their kind of reversal to potentially enable the approval of this drug is to seed a little hope Well, definitely to provide some people with benefit, but to see the little hope for drug companies to continue to invest Mm. in this indication, in this this disease. Mm -hmm. But I think the solution doesn't, it lies in, and I'm not alone, most people in the the art believe (laughs) the solution is to detect this earlier detection. Mm. You go upstream, you detect it before executive reserve runs out. Mm -hmm. And if you can detect it then, 
there's a lot more potential to find druggable targets to see where does the decompensation begin? Yep. Where is the dysfunction happening? Mm-hmm. And start to drug those things. Yep. We've drugged all the things that we thought were, I, I believe, we've tried to drug everything, target everything that we've thought contributes to Alzheimer's and nothing has really worked. Yeah. So in terms of Linus's solution, obviously the broad vision and platform that you've espoused is certainly highly aspirational, right? And inspirational yes. as well. But oftentimes companies I've observed start with the initial nucleus, right? Mm-hmm. Of a solution. When it comes to looking at this space, I've seen companies take the approach of looking at, say, a solution for end users, a solution for providers, a solution for those running clinical trials, et cetera. Where do you sort of see Linus's first footprint in terms of the market. And you're exactly right. We have we have a, a very expansive vision for the company, and it's mm-hmm. it's all to do with precision health. Mm-hmm. But we have to start somewhere. Though I mentioned digital biomarkers, many in the field who would hear me say that if they're listening mm-hmm. will say out loud, they're not validated, mm-hmm. so they're not really biomarkers. <laughs> and I don't disagree. So it begins with we're at the stage of detection. What are we detecting? What are those signals? And are those signals meaningful? So we need to correlate them, and some have been correlated, and then we need to validate them. And we need to understand, with all these signals we're detecting, what is supplementary or redundant, and what is complementary. Because our view is to provide professionals, healthcare professionals, scientific professionals, and individuals a holistic view of brain health, both with the medical and the lifestyle markers. And so that's the stage we're focused on right now, which is that detect. And from detect, when we validate those markers, we will start to move towards diagnose. And mm-hmm. what we aim to provide is a multimodal diagnosis platform that works with the clinician to understand the individual. The data, this longitudinal in situ data that's captured in the daily lives of people is crunched and analyzed and provided a recommendation to the healthcare provider mm-hmm. so that they can spend their time instead of trying to collect a bunch of data during the appointment, the 15 minutes, trying mm-hmm. to remember your name and <laughs> yeah. your history, they can spend their time with data, longitudinal data that's already been crunched and analyzed and statistically ranked. They can spend their time practicing their craft and caring for the patient and using that time to come up with a data-informed precision recommendation for intervention. That includes pharmaceuticals, as well as touching many areas of their life, including Mm -hmm. purpose in life, which is a big contributor, Mm -hmm. sleep, Mm -hmm. nutrition, diet, exercise, the environment, and socialization. Do they feel alone? Are they alone? All these things and more are big factors in the total health of the individual, especially mental and brain health. Hmm, interesting. And so as you guys focus on this initial aspect of sort of detection, what are some of the, if you can share, some of the biomarkers that you're most excited about? You've obviously mentioned a bunch today, Mm -hmm. but how much of it are digital in nature? How much of it might be biological in nature, right? How do you sort of think about that mix? Sure. So the biological ones, you know, they really come through the medical side of things, the health records, as even health record management improves, which it needs to improve, we can draw more insights on the medical side. So these molecular markers and the blood and the 
diagnoses in the past, medications, things that allergies, immunizations, all these things we can integrate into the platform. So we compare those with these digital biomarkers, digital phenotyping, which includes, as I said, voice and speech, gait. I'm excited about eye tracking and combining hmm. them. Analysis of handwriting, how people interact with their computer keyboard, mm -hmm. what's their socialization, and, just to name a few. Yeah, and, but in that regard, there's obviously aspects like, let's call it voice recognition or uh, uh, voice patterns or um, how they interact with the keyboard, mm -hmm. which existing tools out there they help do. you capture some of that data. But things like eye tracking might not be quite where you need it to be or the circumstance in which it's used, it's not on a cell phone or in front of a laptop, for example. How do you think about that mix of wanting to do the data aggregation, the analytics, the machine learning, which is certain, sounds like a, a key part of the detection, mm -hmm. but you kind of need to have, you know, the ticket to the party is having the right piece of hardware that works every time, that's low cost, that's easy to implement, that's non-invasive, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that span between hardware and software in order to be able to empower these sorts of insights in mental health? Certainly. So right now, I mean, obviously there's a percentage of the population that uses wearables mm -hmm. and, and they're more inclined to track and that's great. There's also the smartphones, which have an abundance of sensors mm -hmm. and tapping into those is very useful to draw insights in what's going on. But as you can imagine, people transport their phones differently, especially even males and females, but it also changes on the age range as well. So right now we do have, you know, the mobile phone, which gives a lot of data. It has microphones, cameras already built in so we can access a lot of those, the hardware that can pull in these inputs. Where we see it going and where a lot of, I think, more of the um, futuristic thinkers in the practice, uh, in the scientific and medical community think is that eventually it won't be a burden at all where we are picking up signals just in their home, using ambient or pervasive technology. How, how are they moving through the environment? It can be picked up through you know, displacement of electromagnetic waves. It can be picked up by using radio waves to track people. There are just different ways. Cameras can become dynamic sensing. I know there's privacy issues there, but, but all of these things are able to get insights into brain function without the person even having to do anything, mm. just, just be normal. Got it. So, so it sounds like you're fairly confident that the number of ambient or inline sort of uh, tools that we use, cell phones, computers, etc., are sufficient to drive the data set that we need to make that first impact. Eventually <laughs> uh, sufficient. Got Today, it. so even in Linus, we use standard. Uh, we have integrated standard neurocognitive assessments. Uh, you know, we can measure reaction time, different games, mm -hmm. and you know, memory recall, you know, standard accepted tests or assessments, tasks, if you will, to understand what's going on in the brain. But where we'd like to go is mm -hmm. that even less invasive, less burdensome. Because if you're taking a test, you know you're taking a yeah, test. That's right. And so there is some kind of confounding factor there. Yeah. Just, and it varies from person to person. That's really interesting because... Um you know, I can imagine if you're in the shoes of an end user, to your point, you kind of know when you're at the doctor's office right. or when they're drawing your blood, and this might just be the digital equivalent, maybe less invasive, but it's still uh, a different sort of mindset, invasive. right? Yep. But, you know, you used an interesting word when you articulated uh, some of these different technologies you've been looking at, which is the word privacy. Mm -hmm. And both, you know, uh, in terms of my 
personal interest, along with, I think, the broader industry that we've seen a lot over the past year or two, especially in the consumer world, Mm -hmm. around how data is being used, who has access to what. And that's really starting to drive a lot of regulations like GDPR and CCPA Mm -hmm. around protecting consumer data. Obviously, we're in a slightly different domain here when it comes to health, but one could say it's, it is equally important, if not more so, mm-hmm. from a security and a privacy perspective, given both the identifying nature, along with, as you pointed out, its potential to portend what happens to someone. How do you, are you guys thinking about that data privacy, data security problem in an era where, yeah, how you sound on the cell phone or how you type into a keyboard or how many spelling mistakes you make, right, is indicative of cognitive function? From the Linus perspective, we're a a mission-driven company. Even though we're for-profit, we're impact-oriented. And that's kind of at the roots, that is at the roots. And so this may scare away future investors, but we will never monetize people's data. We look at ourselves as custodians of data. Mm -hmm. We take privacy and security. It's incredibly important to us. So we employ the latest advances, both, of course, HIPAA compliance, but SOC to everything we can to make sure the data is intact and secure. Uh, we feel, as humans ourselves, brain health data, nothing gets deeper than that. Mm-hmm. That goes down to the core of who we are and what makes us operate. And so it's incredibly personal. And so we put privacy, I could say, almost above all else. Mm-hmm. We want it to be scientifically and medically <laughs> credible, mm-hmm. and we are serious about privacy and security. And we will never sell patient health data, period. We are custodians. We can use data to advance our algorithms, to understand and and increase value and and better the healthcare for the population. But a person's data is their data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think maybe the the last quick question slash thought I'd love to get your feedback on here is as we talk about individual data, individuals data, along with the broader analytics and and framework we can apply to an aggregate set, I'm curious from your perspective, whether it be from a digital health standpoint or from a mental health standpoint, how do you see precision health specifically trajecting given the opportunity that some of these new technologies provide, but also the historical, I'd say, lack of heritage behind such therapies and solutions? Great question. And um, I start by saying, you know, precision health is, is, I strongly believe that's where we're heading. I think there are, in addition, and this isn't the only one, but there is a great example of precision health in a company that, full disclosure, I have interest in, and mm-hmm. our CTO also mm-hmm. is, works with that company, founded this company called Huckleberry Labs. Mm-hmm. And Huckleberry's first indication was a sleep product for children. And they have shown that you can get incredible, using AI, you can get incredible efficiency factors to healthcare providers. So, for example, for in the, they, they do others, but sleep, a sleep specialist could take one and a half to two hours to diagnose a personalized case and come up with an intervention plan. Huckleberry has successfully taken that from two hours to less than 10 minutes. And they could go almost full AI, but they want to maintain the human touch and keep human in the loop. And so they, they, they do stick to that. 
but they showed that incredible efficiency factor, so increasing utilization of that asset, the asset in this case is the healthcare provider, lowering the cost, and actually, if you look at their reviews on either Apple, iOS, or Android source, they uplift the standard. And so they have that trifecta. So that is a model that can be applied to achieving precision health, which we're using a similar model in two areas in Linus, where we believe we can inform the healthcare professional in similar manner as Huckleberry does, to where they can come up with a customized plan. What does the customized plan look like? Well, in the case of medicine, most people, especially young people, who go to their primary care physician, they say, I'm depressed. I've even been thinking about suicide. And of course, there's compassion there and there's an attempt to use some kind of medical intervention. Depending on the case, they'll prescribe medicine and say, come see me in six weeks. It's because they need to find out what works for this individual. Mm -hmm. And the way we find that out today is basically prescribe and see. Whereas, and no one disagrees with this, I believe, each person's has unique biochemistry and even brain chemistry. And we need to titrate those medications specifically to the individual. But mm -hmm. you can't, I mean, it's a daunting task, if not aided by technology. But with the right kind of technology and connection, we can actually titrate a specific combination. It doesn't have to be one drug. A specific combination of drugs for their mental health condition that optimizes for efficacy while reducing side effects. Huh. And that's why we've built communications into Linus to where there's the patient is connected to their data and they're connected to their healthcare provider. It's almost like their healthcare provider, because of the technology, is on the journey with them to achieve their vision of their best self. And that is what we aim to achieve with Linus. Great. Well, you know, David, we really appreciate you being on the podcast with us today and uh, talking us through both some of the challenges in mental health along with Linus Health's specific vision and your solution around that. I would love to have you back on in the coming uh, months and, and, and years to sort of follow the trajectory of your company's growth and see how um, you guys can hopefully help us detect Alzheimer's and other diseases uh, much sooner in their life cycle. Certainly. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's produced by Jean Merlane, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.